There's a universal desire in all of our lives to be happy. That's true whether one is a Christian or a non-Christian. Now, people have their own ideas as to how to be happy. And they think that some people think if they were married to somebody else, they'd be happy. We don't want you to think that way. Maybe if I had more money and more possessions and could take this uh, great trip or success or fame. By and large, when it comes to the world, rarely do people say to really experience deep inner happiness, I need to know God, I need to obey his word. Is it wrong for a Christian to seek their own happiness? It sounds self-centered on the surface, and most of the time, it is. But the pursuit of happiness, the seeking after joy, is not in and of itself wrong. In fact, it is honoring to the Lord. John Piper says, Nowhere in the Bible does God condemn people for longing to be happy. People are condemned for forsaking God and seeking their happiness elsewhere. Forsaking God and seeking their happiness elsewhere. That's the problem. In fact, to seek happiness apart from God is idolatry. We're saying... God cannot give me what I want or what I need. I will disregard him. I will not listen to his truth. I will not obey his word. I will look for my happiness in other places, in other people, in other situations. That's a big mistake. God is truly pleased when we look to him for our joy. Many Christians, I believe, are basically unhappy. They have precious little joys because they're looking for that joy in the same places as the world is looking for it. Listen to these verses. Psalm 1611, You make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 3211, Be glad in the Lord, rejoice. O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Jesus is speaking in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. He says in John 16, 24, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. And in the Beatitudes, happy or blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed and blessed has the meaning of deep inner joy, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and, and so on. So there's nothing wrong and everything right about wanting to be happy in the sense of deep inner joy, as long as the focus of that pursuit is God and his truth. Today we begin a study in 1 John, and I mention the subject of joy because of what we read in verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. Just a few uh, facts about 1 John. We are given the reason why John writes 1 John. We'll look at that in a moment. But John wrote 
1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Gospel of John, and the book of Revelation. So in John's Gospel, chapter 20, verses uh, 30 and 31, we find the reason why the Gospel of John is written. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that, there's the purpose, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life through his name. So the Gospel of John was written to explain the Gospel and how we can have life, eternal life, by trusting in Jesus Christ. 1 John was written, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so those who have already believed the Gospel, that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know, to have the certainty that we possess everlasting life. One of the key words in the, gospel, in the first John is the word fellowship. We have the vertical fellowship with God and we have the horizontal fellowship with one another. There is a doctrinal issue that John is dealing with, the issue of Gnosticism. The Greek word for knowledge or know is gnosis. And the Gnostics claim to possess a higher knowledge, spiritual insights that were known only to the, the initiated. They, have a, they had a higher standard, a higher form of revelation than the rest of the human race, even those who believe in the gospel do not have. And Paul in Colossians, in John and 1 John, writes to refute that error. The Gnostics said that matter is evil, therefore God could not become flesh. They denied the incarnation. They denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. He was just a phantom. He was not a real flesh and blood man. Of course, if you deny the humanity of Jesus, you have to deny his substitutionary death. How could a non-entity, a non-person, die on a cross? And that's why John says that those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh are of the devil. 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. And then he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh the incarnation, is from God. Every spirit that does not confess, Jesus is not from God. So those are some of the issues that John is dealing with. He gives us, uh, John gives us several reasons why he writes the book of 1 John. That your joy may be made complete, verse 4 of chapter 1. That you may not sin, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing this to you, about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's writing to warn of false doctrine, chapter 2, verse 26. And he's writing so that they may know that they have eternal life, chapter 5, and verse 13. And we will look at all of these as we go through the book. Today, our theme is fellowship with God, the source of true joy. Uh, there are th various things that threaten our joy as Christians. Loneliness. Loneliness will threaten our joy. And the solution is fellowship with God and with one another. 
Sin and guilt will threaten our joy. And the solution is forgiveness and cleansing through Jesus Christ. Doctrinal error will threaten our joy. And the answer to that is knowing the truth of God and living by that truth. And doubt and fear will threaten our joy. And the solution is the gospel that comes with the promise of eternal life. John lived and ministered during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. And his cruelties, if you can believe this, his cruelties exceeded all who preceded him, including the infamous Nero. Christians lived in a hostile environment. There was persecution from without. There was doctrinal error from within. And I believe that throughout church history that the subtle attacks of false teachers from within the church have done more damage to the Christian faith than persecution from outside of the church. That's, that's true today. The distortion and denial of fundamental biblical truth is rampant. It's rampant in Christendom. When clear biblical teaching is compromised or rejected, then the church becomes like the world in its moral teachings, as has happened in many parts of the church in our own day. And when the church is like the world, it is useless to the world. It does the world no good. It is no help to the masses who have lost their way because the church has lost its way too in many places. So we want to look at how fellowship with God is the source of our joy. In verse 1, Jesus came into the world as flesh and blood human being. So John is right away denying the teaching of the Gnostics who said that God cannot become human or matter flesh and blood because matter is inherently evil. So that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and, are, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That which was from the beginning. There are three beginnings in, in, in the Bible. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there is the material universe. When did this beginning take place? Well, most people in our society, including many Christians, believe that the world, the universe, is billions and billions of years old. I tend to disagree with that, not that I'm a scientist, but I believe scripture points to a relatively recent creation in terms of thousands of years in six literal days. In John chapter 1, John's Gospel chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, another beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So if you look back in John's Gospel chapter 1, he was in the beginning, referring to the Word, which is obviously in this context, the second person of the Trinity. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A clear statement of the deity of Jesus Christ. So as far back as we can go, which is back into eternity, we have the Word, we have God the Father, and of course we have the Holy Spirit. The Trinity does not have a beginning. 
does not have a starting point. We are creatures of time, of space and time. We cannot understand timelessness. Now, someday we will be in heaven, those who trust in Christ, for all eternity. I don't even understand eternity because it's timeless. You want to be out of here by 12 o'clock. Good luck. No, no, you... You know what? I'm finding that Dan is preaching shorter sermons than I am these days. He's, he, re, he reminds me of that. He puts the uh, sermons up on our website, and we do all that from, from the church here. And it gives the, the minutes and the seconds that you preached, unfortunately. And mine have turned out to be longer than Dan's, and I have got to change that. I'll make mine three seconds shorter, okay? We'll, we'll see if that'll... But we serve a God who has no beginning because he is uh, timeless. So whenever the beginning of eternity was, which is really no beginning because eternity would not be eternity if it, was, if it said time. Where am I going with this? I'm not sure. So there's a beginning of the material creation. There's a beginning that really doesn't have a beginning, which is the eternity. And then there's John, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1, that which was from the beginning. He's not talking about the beginning of creation. I don't think he's talking about the timeless beginning of the Trinity. I think he's referring to a definite time, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, where the apostles lived with Jesus and slept with him and could touch him and could talk to him and they ate together, that beginning. So John says that this one, this word of life was from the beginning and was a person, was seen and heard and touched. So the apostles enjoyed fellowship with Jesus while he was on earth. They saw him with their physical eyes. They were in his physical presence. They spoke with him. They touched him. And none of this can be true of us today because Jesus is ascended at the right hand of the Father. It doesn't mean we can't experience the reality of Christ we don't have to be in the physical presence of Christ to experience the reality of Christ. We can experience that reality by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And in faith, we reach out to Jesus because he is there. He is alive. We can talk to Jesus even though we don't see him. The Christian faith rests upon great facts. Jesus lived in time. He's an historical figure. He had a real existence in this world. He interacted with people. Christ is not merely an idea. He was God come in the flesh. Ray Steadman says, Our Christian faith does not rest simply on ideas or creedal statements. That is why becoming a Christian is not simply a matter of joining a church or believing a certain creed or signing a doctrinal statement. You can do all this and not be a Christian. We need to believe the facts that the Bible teaches about Christ. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity who became flesh. But to have a relationship with Christ, we need to do much more than that. We need to trust in Jesus and surrender to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. At the close of the letter, John tells us something extremely important. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
there's a good definition of a Christian. You have communion, you have union, you have an experience of oneness with Jesus Christ. If you don't have that relationship, you may be religious, you may be spiritual, you may be faithful in church, but you do not have life. So no matter what church we attend, no matter how devoted to a religious system we are, we only possess eternal life when we repent of our sins, realize there's no goodness, there's no righteousness, there's no merit in ourselves, and we turn in complete trust to Jesus and his atoning work. Concerning the word of life, and as we know, First John, uh, John's gospel opens with the same expression, that Christ is the Word. Why this designation? Christ as the Logos, the Word. Well, words express ideas. We communicate with words. Jesus is the communication of God, the perfect communication of God. His teaching, his life revealed the nature and the character of God. God is communicated best to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Word. He is the source of eternal life. Verse 2, the life was manif made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John says that this life was made manifest. It was made visible. Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, that does not mean that God the Father has a body. Some religious groups, some cults, that's what they teach. That God the Father was once a man like us, and all men have the potential to becoming gods of their own worlds. That's what Mormonism teaches. So God does not possess a physical body. God is spirit. And God forbade the Jews to try to represent God. This is why I think that the book of the Shack is, is distorts the Trinity in terrible ways because it tries to make God into a, an African-American woman. Um, the Israelites were forbidden to make any representation of God. When God revealed himself on, on the mount, giving the law, they... There was thunder and lightning and smoke, but there was no configuration. There was no object that they could look at. They just heard sounds and saw smoke and lightning. Just how does Jesus make the Father known to us? Jesus shows the compassion of the Father, the love of the Father, the wisdom of the Father, the power of the Father. All the attributes of God the Father are made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. But he also lived in total dependence on God the Father. He submitted himself as a son to his Father. He didn't become less than deity while a man, but he lived as a son in dependence on the Father. And that's how we are to live, in dependence on God the Father. There was no conflict of wills between the Son and the Father. They were not at cross-purposes in any matter, including the death of the Son on the cross. So how Christ lived 
by submitting to the Father is how we are to live in submission to the will of God. There should be no conflict of wills. There often is, sadly, between our will and the will of God the Father. And we are not to look inwardly to the source of our wisdom, to the source of our strength. There isn't much in there anyways. When our confidence is in ourselves, we live very limited, self-centered lives. We are weak and frail. We are ignorant about so many things. And when we see ourselves as a sufficient, self-sufficient, we don't go to God. We don't go to his truth, and we make many wrong choices. We also manifest much pride and self-will. We pit our wills against God. So you have strife when we pit our wills against God. We have strife with God when we pit our wills against other people in the marriage, in the church. We have strife. We have conflict. So John says, this life was made manifest. We have seen it and testify and proclaim to you eternal life. Flipping over the first John chapter 5, again in verse 11. This is the testimony that God has given to us eternal life. And where is this life? This life is in the Son. Eternal life does not begin when you die. Eternal life begins when you're saved. At the moment of your conversion, you possess the Holy Spirit. You possess eternal life. Well, physically, we will die. But our spirits, our souls, lives forever. Eternal life is not a reward, it's a gift. It's not gained through our merit, it's gained through the merits of Christ. The gift of God is eternal life. We can have fellowship with God and with one another. We read in verse 3. Fellowship means to have in common, to share in common. When you have things in common with another person, you have the potential for wonderful fellowship. When you don't have things in common, there is no fellowship. And John is speaking about a unique kind of relationship here, the relationship of the believer with Jesus Christ. Grant Richardson, uh, it is crucial to cultivate Christian fellowship. We have to work at it. Some people could care less whether they go to church or not. That violates the principle of Christian fellowship, and Hebrews points that out also. The basis for the appeal of Scripture to live together in understanding, in harmony, is not that we possess such wonderful personalities or that we are naturally lovable and gracious. It'd be nice if that were true of all of us, but sometimes it's not true of us at various times. We can be grouchy. Not you, but I certainly can be. We can be self-centered. We can be argumentative and antagonistic. We can speak words that wound. We can do things that destroy. So the basis of our fellowship is not our great personalities. It is our relationship with Jesus Christ that we share as Christians and the power of the Spirit to overcome those natural tendencies for separation and disunity that exists in our hearts. In fact, we are commanded to love God and love others even when they are unkind to us. 
and hurtful toward us. And how is this possible? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, faithfulness. The horizontal relationship between people in your household, people in the church, the horizontal relationship depends upon a vertical relationship with God. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Why is there sometimes conflict in churches, conflict in Christian homes? It's because there's something wrong with the vertical fellowship with God. We are not loving God the way we should, and John will deal with this in 1 John. We are not loving God as we should, and therefore we don't love one another as we should. Love for God, if it's real, if it's genuine, will always overflow in love for others. So genuine communion with Christ means I place all that I am and all that I have at the disposal of God to be used for his glory. And he provides the resources we need to live in fellowship with one another. I make myself available to him and to other people. Fellowship with God and one another results in authentic joy. That's what we see in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. So when you think, when you think of the whole letter and everything John will be saying in this letter, and you might want to read through it this, this week, he's writing that so that their joy may be made full as they see those to whom, as he sees those to whom he's writing to start to live in this way. And as Paul says that his joy was found when the saints love Jesus and love one another, John is saying the same thing here. Acts 13.52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The gospel and joy belong together. Knowing Jesus should be our greatest source of joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, Having fellowship with God, with one another, brings us joy. Obeying the commands of Christ will result in joy. Praying in the name of Jesus and the will of God will result in joy. So every one of us should be characterized by joy. The, the problem is, the question is, are we? And how often are we? When, if other people think of you and think of how you relate to them, would they call you a person of joy. A person, it's just great to be with this person because they're so positive and they're encouraging and they're kind and they're gracious and they're really negative and they seem to have so much joy. When we were in India several years ago, um, Carol and I, that's the thing that struck, struck us. The poverty was extreme and heartbreaking. The joy was overwhelming. And you can see it, these dark brown faces and white teeth always smiling, always rejoicing. So consider your daily attitude, your daily outlook. Would the term joy be an accurate description of your life? Well, we, we argue, we all do. I have so many pressures. I have so many problems. There's so much stress in my life. I have relational issues. I have financial concerns. I have health issues. How is it possible for me to have joy with all this negative stuff going on in my life. Well, talk to the Apostle Paul and see what he says about that. 
The Apostle Paul endured more problems than we will ever face, but he had joy. He was slandered. He had joy. He was rejected. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He had people tell lies about him constantly, but he had joy. He knew what it was to be under intense pressure with the care of the churches. He had pain probably all the time because he was beaten up so often. But he had joy. Now, I'm not saying that I'm an Apostle Paul because I'm not. But that is the direction our life ought to be growing as we live in communion with Christ. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when everything is happening in your life the way you want it to happen. Oh, I, I misread the text. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the purpose of the testings, and we all have them, is to point out how weak and frail we are so that we are driven to the throne of grace in prayer over and over and over again so that we depend upon God and we seek his resources. It's not that the trials are not trials. It's not that the pressures are not pressures. They are, and they're real, and they can be extreme at times. But behind all this, deep down, there is a joy that this is part of God's sovereign plan for our lives. Joy does not preclude the experience of distress. Joy does not mean we escape the burdens of life or the heartaches of life. Joy does not mean that we never shed tears, never experience grief. Nor is joy a fickle, surface, worldly kind of feeling happy. Joy means the profession, the possession of confidence and the assurance that God has begun a good work in us and will keep that good work going till the end of our days. He is at work, and in the most distressing points of our life, we can endure because of the power of God within We have joy when we rest in God's sovereign will and purposes. Ray Steadman says, do not make the mistake of thinking that the only way to have joy is to be free from pressures and problems. No, you will have all of these. But along with them, the wonderful feeling down inside that God is at work and he is at work in you. When our fellowship with God is a sweet fellowship, a genuine fellowship, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. But our focus in life's heartaches and hardships needs to be Jesus. One writer says, how tedious, how tedious and tasteless the hours when Jesus no longer I see. One writer says, the thrill and joy of the Christian life disappears when we lose sight of Jesus. And we've all been through experiences where, where the problem seems looms so much bigger than anything, even bigger than God. Those are not pleasant moments in our lives. God is bigger than our problems. God is wiser than the confusion that we have 
in the midst of our problems. If we are lacking joy, I believe there's one fundamental reason for it. We're not looking to Jesus. Our focus is not fixed on Christ. We're looking in the wrong place. We're expecting a relationship to bring us joy. We're expecting some possession, some experience to bring us joy. We think that if there's a significant change in our life at some point, we can have joy. But in the heartaches, the hardships, the troubles, the trials of life, God says, my child, you have every reason to have joy because I am still sovereign. I know what I'm doing. And your responsibility is to trust me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. We're not denying the things of earth. They're very real to us. But in comparison to Jesus, they're relatively insignificant. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Fellowship with God, the source of true joy. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for these truths. And everyone who's gathered here today, every one of us, have issues we are dealing with have struggles, we have concerns, we have anxieties, but we have you, and you love us, and the cross is proof of that. You will never leave us or forsake us. You will provide grace upon grace. That's your promise, and you will keep your promise. So please give us joy, and I ask this in Christ's name, amen.